I remember my dad telling me, you know, people are going to judge you different than an average employee. So you got to work hard, you know, so you have to put in even more effort when you're part of the family than when you're not. You know, you can't be that country club kid that's just coming in that's getting the job because of nepotism. You have to really do it. And we had that passion to, to do it. Hey, everybody, I'm Sam Coates, and this is the Driven By Podcast. Life's a lot more fun when you're all in and passionate about what you're building. Here, you'll hear me with entrepreneurs, operators, executives, and public servants from all over the country. They'll discuss their commitment to their craft, defining moments, what's made them successful, where things are headed in their space, plus so much more. This podcast is produced by the team at DrivenbySamCoats.com. And for more information and episodes, go to DrivenbySamCoats.com backslash podcast. Before we get to today's episode, here's a quick word from our sponsor for today's podcast. AB Jets is a great story. It started very small with an entrepreneur and a dream. And it's now one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. So bypass the hassle and fly private. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS. Hey, everybody. My guest today is Andy Heck. Andy is the co-owner and president of Alpenhouse, an outdoor recreation powerhouse out of Amsterdam, New York. Alpenhouse has 300 employees and does right at $100 million a year in revenue. And it's a third-generation private family business that started like many other great American companies with entrepreneurs in a dream. Alpenhouse is one of the most respected RV dealers in the United States and they sell ski equipment, boats, snowmobiles, and much more. With a CPA background at one of the current big four accounting firms, Andy gave up this life and went all in on the family business. Now, let's get to this week's episode. Andy, great to see you. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, great to see you too. I read something somebody wrote about your leadership style and your company, but they said that your business has been around for years because you understand what it means to focus on customers and never be satisfied with the status quo. I know you have a big four accounting background, your company close to a 60 year history, your second generation CEO and your third generations in the business. Could you maybe share off the bat what you've learned and what's kind of shaped you and your family to have extreme focus and then to push for improvement constantly for 60 years? Yeah, well, First, at the customer side, you know, we, uh, I think it's, sometimes we look at it as a disadvantage, but we look at it as an advantage. We live in a smaller community. And so we're, you know, we were always taught by my father that you have to treat customers right. One, because we live in a small community, but two, because it's the right thing to do if you want to succeed long-term. And then, you know, so, you know, just the, the lessons learned, you know, that in business, things are always changing. You know, the world's always changing. The economy is always changing. So you have to, um, that's probably the biggest lessons we learned is never, um, you can't stay satisfied because if you do, you know, it's uh, like they say, you're either, you know, you're either growing or you're dying as a business and you have to, um, you have to evolve. You know, you look at the, through history, how many great companies all of a sudden don't exist anymore, right? When you say do things right, I know a lot of us, we hear that 
a lot, but what does that specifically look like for you in your company and what that looks like when it's done? We look at it both from the customer and the employee side, you know, and like I said, coming back to like, I just had this conversation uh, with some of my management team the other day about taking care of customers is that at the end of the day, some, you know, you're going to go to the grocery store, you're going to run to our customers, you're going to go to church, see our customers, you're going to be in the ball field. And, you know, that's why, you know, I want to empower them on the front lines that we have to take care of these, you know, we have to take care of them because it is not just because it's the right thing to do because it, you know, because they're part of, you know, they're part of our extended family, our customers are, and we have to take care of them. And I think sometimes, you know, um, in business, some people, they don't have that direct connection to their customers. So it's not, they're more of a number than a friend. You know, we really build relationships with our customers and they know the same on the employee front, you know, where we, we have so many long-term employees and we just want a culture. Uh, we know we spend more time together, uh, most of us at work than we do at home. And we want to, you know, why not come to work and have fun? And, you know, and that's one of the things as we've grown is like, how do we keep that family culture going, you know, as we've added stores and added employees and grown over the years, just to be able to, you know, be flexible, have a fun, but a disciplined uh, business. You all have close to 300 employees. Is that correct? Correct. From my experience, it seems that things like this happen when people at the top believe it and live it out. What keeps you personally so engaged over three decades in every single day to not get distracted where it seems like it's very common for people to get distracted? And then these things that are on a wall are said, they disappear. Yeah, I think it's something, you know, that's been near and dear to my heart, you know, because, you know, growing up in the business, you know, that my dad started in the way that he um, lived the way, you know, his values with all of us and taught us, you know, we, uh, my brother and I, especially because we're close in age, you know, we spent so much time at the business growing up. We saw the relationships that he had with our, with our, with our employees, with our customers, with our vendors, you know, and, and really that was one of the key things that, you know, he was such a hustler and such an entrepreneur, uh, but it was more of the people side that we really learned. And so for me, it's like, as we started, like I said, a couple minutes ago, adding stores, you know, at first we would kind of take some employees that worked at the stores and put them in so we could kind of transplant that um, Alpenhaus heritage, you know, into into those stores. But then as we've grown, it becomes tougher. So, you know, we've had to really evolve like a lot of like a lot of companies and really just be disciplined about how do we train on this and how do we really, how does this happen every day? So we, um, we're obsessed with it, really, I would say, you know, and that's one of the things that we just um, make sure. And it's, it's, it's tough, you know, and that's one of the things, you know, I get around, try to get around those stores and with close to 300 people now, um, I still try to, as we grow at some point, maybe, you know, it'll be tough, but I try to know every employee by name at all the stores. It's tough, you know, seasonally, it's tough when we have some part-timers in that, but it's, um, it's that important to me. I'm not familiar with the specific data on this, but I would assume there's been a tremendous amount of consolidation in your space. Is that fair? Oh, yeah. It's been, uh, it's really been unbelievable. You know, the last, it started about 20 years ago. But really, in the last uh, five years, in all the spaces that we're in, and especially in the RV space, the consolidation has just been unbelievable. So without trying to throw anyone under the bus, but with acquisitions and consolidation, are you saying that it plays an advantage with you and your family and Al- Alpine House, where y'all are able to really be deeply connected to your community, but also the people that are your customers, where people that are just doing it off a spreadsheet or you know they just have scale and so much turnover coming in and out that it's a true advantage? I would say so. You know, we're, uh, we're in a peer group with a lot of other independent family-owned dealerships throughout the country, and that's what we all talk about. It's, we're big enough that we have, you know, some scale, 
but yet we're all independently owned. And, you know, especially in our case that we still are connected to that. It matters personally to us that our communities do and that our, and that, you know, our customers and our employees do. And I think that's, um, you know, it's like, as you know, and when businesses go through those consolidations, some do it well, some don't do it as well, but it's always tough when you're, when you're part of a big corporate, you know, versus uh, being truly family owned. As much as you feel comfortable, could you share why you and your family haven't sold up to this point? Yeah, you know, we're, you know, we love coming to work every day. We love our business. You know, we look at, we're, we're in a growth mode. You know, it's been a um, just a steady growth mode for many years. And, you know, because also now, you know, two of my three kids are in the business. So we're looking, you know, to make it go from first generation to second to third. And, you know, so that's one of the things that it's just, you know, is it a challenging business? Absolutely. But is it, it's, but it's fun, you know, uh, let's face it, you know, selling, we sell and we're passionate about the products we sell. And that's, that's what makes it fun every day. And it's like, um, I look at it, like I tell some of my people, it's almost like, a, I love sports too. And this is like a sport, you know, every day we have a scoreboard, we know how we're doing. And it's just, um, it's exciting. I can't wait to get to work every day. So you're saying that passion's there and it's always been there. So it doesn't matter how much money somebody could offer you because you want it to go on to the next generation and you're, you're successful as it is and you're having fun doing it. Yeah, we're having fun. Exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, it's, we're pretty humble. We're pretty happy, you know? So it's like, what, you know, for what, you know, <laughs> you know, so why, what's the purpose? I've seen so many people sell, oh, geez, the money's on the table and then they sell and they're not really, then, then they're like, then what? They don't have a purpose. You know, this is like our purpose. You know, we feel really connected that we're, uh, we're helping people every day, you know, enjoy life, you know? So has there ever been a really tough time in your business where you almost had to shut it down? Oh, there's been so many tough, you know, it's been such a roller coaster. You know, my dad would have a lot of stories on that through the uh, up and down through their early years and through the 70s with the gas crisis and then, then the high interest rates and the different wars that we went through. I would say the toughest time for in my recent history was 08, 09 with that great recession, you know, where it was that was a huge challenge, you know, because I mean, the economy basically stopped in our space. Consumer discretionary was was dead. You know, banks didn't want to lend money. Our manufacturers were going out of business. They were going bankrupt, you know? So it was, uh, I think, I think that I'm not sure exactly what it ended up with, but I think one third of RV dealers went out of business. I mean, it was, um, as, as we all know, it seems like just yesterday in my mind, but it's now been, you know, 15 years ago this summer that we kind of really started getting into the middle of that, how bad that was. So it's that, we learned a lot of lessons during those, that time, let me tell you. And you had just taken over, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, Officially had taken over, you know, I was kind of working with my dad, you know, running the day to day, but obviously um, he still, even after that point was very involved, but you know, he said it was my, my job to run the day to day operations at that point. Could you go back maybe to as much as you remember, like what month did you start to get concerned? What was that like for you coming in and how long was the pain cycle of going through 08 through that season? I would say it really started for us, I think, and um, I just I remember it was August of 08, when all of a sudden, like, every day, all the media was about the gas prices, they were going up so fast. And, you know, back in that time, anytime gas prices went up, you know, and it's still that day, right? Still people talk about gas prices, but in our business, you know, they would always talk about gas prices and negatively how it affects, especially uh, on the RV side, the RV sales, and same, with the, same on, the, on the boat side too. But with motorhomes, it's tough to tough to sell, you know, when the media is competing against you, trying to tell everybody how crazy it is. And then, um, so we started to see that in August and then September, all of a sudden we started seeing lenders getting scared and spooked. And, you know, we were at a convention, uh, the RVDA convention uh, in September 
And one of the banks, you know, middle, middle of the convention pulled out of the RV business. And we were all like, oh my goodness, you know, what's going on? And then I remember a couple months later for our buying convention, it was like a ghost town and people, you know, that, that fall business had just come to a halt, just like out of nowhere. And it was, um, it was a long process, you know, getting from 08 until 09, you know, and then as um, the, over that winter time, that's when it really hit hard for a lot of dealers and manufacturers. So it was, um, it was, it was a process, that's for sure. Throughout all of, all, you know, end of 08 and through all of 09, it was really tough. And you said 30% went out, 30% of people similar to you. Mm-hmm. Did you have to lay people off? Yeah, yeah, we certainly did. Yeah, we did. You know, and we uh, we ended up uh, at that time closing one of the RV stores, consolidate down, trying to really um, figure out how to best stay um, financially stable as a company, and really try to figure out, you know, how do we? If the market has shrunk so much, how do we? How do we do this? How do we do the same with less? And so, yeah, it was um, it was something. Was that the hardest point of your career so far? Yeah, I would say so because, you know, back before we'd have cycles that went up and down, you know, they'd be a little softer, but, you know, we never saw it where it just, um, where from year to year, it's like our revenue dropped. I think it was like 60%, you know, it wasn't like a 10% drop. I mean, and then because of how much inventory everybody had and, and because of the auctions, because of all the repos out there that, you know, you'd have something new in stock that you'd sell. We'd have an RV, a diesel RV. That maybe we paid 175,000 for that normally you can make a profit on, obviously, that we'd have to, we were having to sell for 150,000 just to get rid of it because the manufacturer was out of business, banks had repoed stuff, dealers were just selling stuff. I mean, it was a, it was a bloodbath. AB Jets is a great story. Started very small with an entrepreneur and a dream. And it's now one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. So bypass the hassle and fly private. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS. What would you say, given that a third went out, you said you shut down one location, downside, and then now you're in probably on the, I wouldn't say tail end, but definitely it's mature, but been one of the biggest runs and booms in your space. Would you say that you and your family got right that others didn't to get through it the way that you did? Well, you know, we always looked at it, you know, it's, um, you know, the business always came, you know, we hustled and worked, you know, we, you know, we have come kind of a diverse business because we have some winter business too on the ski side and then the snowmobile side. So we always had some cash flow when the summer wasn't there, we had winter. So that was kind of an advantage for us a little bit. But then we just really looked at, you know, it's just like they always tell you, like on, on your home front, you know, how much do you have cash set aside for a crisis? Well, we thought we had some cash set aside for a crisis, but we didn't know, you know, you could have a balance sheet, but if you didn't have cash, you know, that's one of the things in business. Um, I think we talked to you or an EO guy, you know, Vern Harnish always talks about one of the key things of being cash, right? And so I saw, so those in those years after I told our team and worked with our team on that, with our upper management, that we have to, we have to get out of, debt. We have to eliminate as much. We have to be very disciplined over the next years to see if how much debt we can eliminate and then to get in a point where how much cash can we accumulate. And so that's kind of what we're really focused on. You know, we debated what's more important, you know, customer satisfaction, employee satisfaction, or this or that. And I said, you know what, if we get the balance sheet right, we can always, we always live to see another day to repair those other ones. But I said, if we, if our customers love us and our employees love us, but we have no cash, we can't exist. 
And so we really, we just focused on that. We went through every, every area of the business and just tried to really focus on that. And, you know, it was like the, um, it was like the flywheel. It just kind of, it seemed to start out slow, the inertia, get it going. But then once we got momentum, it's all of a sudden it just kept uh, going faster and faster and getting ourselves in uh, better and better shape. So, that, um, you know, it was, uh, it was one of the toughest things we ever went through, but now we look at it, you know, we wouldn't have been as successful today as we are if we didn't go through that crisis in 0809. Because it, it lets you know, it showed you how far you could bend, but not break. Yeah. And I, and I think that we also realized how disciplined we had to be. And, you know, and it's like that no matter any crisis that we knew that we became so much more financially disciplined in how we were going to approach to do things that we didn't ever want to get in trouble again, you know, and that's uh, through any crazy economic thing, situation that would come up. For those of us that haven't been to Amsterdam, New York, what's it like? How would you describe it? Oh, it's uh, you know, we, uh, we like to say it's like the old TV show cheers. It's a, uh, it's a great community, great city, you know, in the Mohawk Valley, just uh, west of uh, the capital city of Albany, New York. And um, it's just awesome. You know, we have all four seasons, so it's great. Um, it's just great for great place to live and, and uh, raise a family. That's for sure. You went and worked for Ernst & Young, correct? After college? I did. Where was that? In, uh, in Albany. Worked out of the Albany office. That yeah, was a lot of fun. What can your hometown, the community like you're describing, what can you say about how it can resonate the way it does with you, even though I know it's not that far from Albany, but to where you'd want to get out of accounting, Ernst & Young, Big Four, it's a prestigious job, making great money to go back into the family business. How would you describe that? Yeah, you know, my goal, it's like I, um, I went to Siena College and then I just wanted to work, you know, at the time it was the Big Eight. I just wanted to work for the Big Eight. That was my, that was my singular focus the whole time through Siena and and I got there and I loved every minute of it. And then my dad and I and my brother were skiing. And my dad said that uh, his partner was potentially uh, maybe looking to retire. None of his kids wanted to get in the business. If we wanted to get in the business, that maybe, you know, he could help, we could help him and help him grow it. And we loved the business, you know. So I loved, um, loved my CPA life. But then it was like, it was, I didn't even have to hesitate like uh, at all. I was like, yeah, let's, let's do this. It was, uh, it was, it was exciting to me to be able to come in and, and just really help uh, grow up and be part of that, you know, because that was, it's not that I didn't ever think I would work on it, but it, it work in the business, but, you know, growing, growing up, I mean, we were, you know, small, but growing business, you know, in Amsterdam, New York, but then, you know, my dad and I would chat about the opportunities. It was, uh, it was exciting to me to be, and to be able to come back in now as an adult and work with him and, and my brother and then eventually the rest of the family it was very exciting. Your dad's name's Bud, correct? Correct. And his partner was John Daly. John Daly, yeah. Not the golfer. Right, right. <laughs> he started in 1964 and had one full-time employee and six part-time employees. And now today, y'all have close to 300. Is that fair? That's fair, yeah. Could you share how it came together back in 1964? What's the story there? Sure. The two of them, you know, they were uh, childhood buddies. They were uh, entrepreneurs, always doing something to uh, make a buck, uh, Christmas trees, snow cone truck, other, uh, other things. And they were, uh, they were passionate about skiing and they decided, you know, there was no place to get skis locally. So why not uh, start a ski shop part-time? So they both had their own jobs and just hired some of their buddies, as you can imagine being 23. Now I look at it, I'm like, I can't even imagine, you know, and they just uh, got it off the ground. selling, you know, just having a ski shop part-time, you know, and then, then figured out, Hey, what can we sell in the summer to also make uh you know, that would also work out. And that's how we got into, um, into the RV side of the space. And then as it started to grow, they, you know, they both took the leap of faith to, um, 
quit their jobs and make it a full-time career. What was their jobs? My father was an accountant for the state, state of New York, and uh, John Daly was a truck driver. What can you say when you think about that generation and you think about the start of Alpenhouse and the impact and opportunity that is there today and will be in the future? How would you describe your dad and his partner, their personality and, and even that generation to just start something in such a humble way and then make it work? You know, I look at it and that's, you know, we share these stories a lot with younger people about how you work hard and get ahead and the work ethic and what they did. They were, they were working so many hours and so much, but they were having fun doing it. But also they were so, um, sometimes, I mean, some of the stories, you know, I remember, I remember growing up here and some of them, but still my dad would, I ever tell you this story? And I'm like, I don't think I've heard that one, you know, crazy, you know, just crazy stuff, you know, but they would, they just did whatever it took, you know, to try to create sales, try to take on different products and try to make things happen. And there was no obstacle. There was no, they didn't accept no for an answer, you know, whether it was, uh, you know, going to the bank to try to get money or whether it was taking on a product line and they were, you know, they were just doing whatever take. It wasn't like, Hey, I got to be off tomorrow. I got to this or that. It was, no, we got to, you know, we're going to make it happen. You know, it's uh, and that's what they did. You know, it was, and obviously, when you're a small company like that, they wore every hat, you know, the two of them really complement each other in a, in a great way, but they basically, um, whatever it took, they just found a way to make it happen. So you live in a beautiful part of the country that has skiing, you have boating, obviously you sell a ton of RVs. You're one of the top most reputable RV dealers in the country. And you, you talked about all four seasons. Could you maybe describe, well, and I know you've been in the business 30 years, but could you maybe describe you know, those first 30 years and what your business actually did and then where things were when you came into it? Sure. You know, when I came in, we had, um, we were all under one, we were one location. We were at a, we had a big plaza, which we still have that plaza um, shopping center uh, in Amsterdam up, up on the corridor, which is now like uh, most places in America with all the other, uh, you know, stores, you know, whether it's a Home Depot or Lowe's or all the big box stores, Target, Walmart, we're in that corridor at the time, we were the only one kind of there. And so, you know, when my dad brought in, we he had some consultants, you know, how do we put some systems and processes in place and do things like that? Because, you know, you just kind of, like I said earlier, we just kind of willed things to victory and we had some processes. You know, I look back at that time for a company our size, we actually had things in place, but then, you know, we got in this, uh, you know, RV peer group and um, a guy named Bill Gorman ran it at the time and he, he consulted for us and so did uh, some of his consultants and just to kind of help us put things in place. And as we learned from other dealers and just kind of figured out, you know, how do you keep incrementally improving and just doing things, you know, and that allowed us to um, then open another, we, I mean, there were times, you know, in history where we had other locations, but at that time we only had the one. And then, and then we ventured to start adding locations, you know, in the late nineties again. And, but we had a, we had a different kind of approach as we went about it. What more discipline, more structure, yeah, more, more structure, you know, or, you know, I think with um, a process, you know, so it wasn't just, um, hey, work hard, here's the keys and do a good job. It was more of like, this is, you know, we started really over time developing the Alpenhouse system, whether it was for a selling system to, you know, how would we account for things? You know, obviously, you know, computers were early on, you know, in my life, there really wasn't computers, you know, and then became, you know, com you know, I came in the generation where now we have a computer, we had a computer system and now we can track stuff and, and, you know, versus on uh, graph paper and things like that, you know? And so that, you know, we were able to get more information, more sophisticated information. And then, um, you know, service, 
systems, you know, for, uh, you know, tracking and billing customers, all those kind of things, you know, we kind of put in place, you know, and then that started out. And I think then, then I think all these years later after the recession were really helped for us, I think for the, for the growth runner now is when we added a store downstate in Port Jervis, you know, it's 150 miles from our location. And so there was no, nobody from our current culture that we were going to transplant the work there. So that really helped us kind of come up with the, uh, our playbooks, so to speak, and our systems and processes. Because then we had to teach people. We couldn't have somebody that had been with us for 5, 10, 15, 20 years to be working alongside. So, you know, that's when we started developing even a higher level management structure to kind of work. And that really even made us better at our existing stores because now it's like we got to start doing things the same way at every store. Kind of, you know, kind of like, um, you know, like we say the you know, the franchises do to a certain stake, you know, and that's what the best uh, dealers do as far as being disciplined on that approach. So RVs kind of came mainstream what year? Came mainstream as far as in what respect would you say? When y'all started selling them. Oh, okay. It was, uh, I think, 1967 is when we started selling just some pop-up trailers, you know, and then, uh, then it really started taking off in the, in the 70s, big time. And y'all started selling boats in the 60s as well? No, we started boats uh, in the late 80s. And uh, at th- th- that time, we also, um, on our local lake, we built a marina. And so we were in the marina business for a while. So we have a place for all of our customers to have a boat. So, so that was kind of a, a vertical approach, so to speak. And so that was uh, how we got into boats. And then years later, we ended up selling the marina. And but stayed, I've stayed in the boat business and grown that since. So your dad's just, he's passionate about the outdoors. And he's passionate about adventure. And he's, he's a risk taker. And he has a really high tolerance for persevering through adversity. Is that fair? Oh, yeah. No doubt about it. Yeah. Your business was started out of a passion. And then he would he just worked incredibly hard, he and his partner. And then as RVs or, you know, boating or snowmobiles and, you know, skiing's obviously been around a lot longer, but he just kept getting into different lines of business that were becoming more and more mainstream throughout the country. Is that fair? Oh, without a doubt. And that's not even the things like that, that we were in and out of over the years. You know, we sold um, there in the internet. We, we were in motorcycles big time for the 70s and 80s. You know, back when the I remember uh, in high school and college, when one of the gas crises was in, we sold, I can't even tell you how many mopeds, when mopeds were the craze way back then. And, you know, three wheelers and four, three wheelers before there were four wheelers, we were selling them. And we sold garden tractors. We sold kerosene heaters. We sold uh, stove black, you know, uh, stove inserts, you know, for uh, heating in the house. We had, you know, sneakers, tennis, bicycles. We had all sorts of different things, you know, that were in and out. And then we just, it kind of kept coming back to the core stuff of what was, um, was always, hey, does this fit? And can we make a buck doing it? And do our, would our customers want it? But then it came back, I guess, more to, what are we good at? And what's really scalable? And how would you d- differentiate that? When you talk about motorcycles, take that for an example. What's different and what's scalable? Why were motorcycles not scalable? They kind of were at the time, you know, and it worked. But then it became, you know, went through a phase where it was kind of down. It wasn't as strong. So I remember coming, you know, um, we, were, we were getting out of the kind of the business, out of the motorcycle business when I got back in. And it just wasn't what it was, you know. And that was back up before Harley was strong. And that, you know, it was we were a big Yamaha dealer at that time. And so a lot of dirt bikes too, but it was uh, one of those things that it was um, a lot of parts, not a lot of margin, you know, and it was uh, tough clientele, you know, not, not tough clientele, but just it was a tougher business, you know, than, um, than some of the other ones we were in. What do you think had to happen for the baton to get handed off from first generation to second? What kind of skill sets 
did you or whoever would have taken your role would they have to have in your brother to really take something to a new level? Yeah. <clears throat> well, I think in our case, you know, and it kind of happened, uh, I don't th- I think it was kind of by accident was that we worked elsewhere, you know, so we, we, we created our own kind of identity and learned, you know, outside of the family business. And then I think coming back in that my father was such a good mentor to us, you know, like when we, um, and I show people to this day at that store, my, my dad and I had connecting offices. So we, you know, we worked together side by side for so many years that we were, uh, I got to see how he thought he'd yell to me to get something done. We talk, you know, we talked, I mean, still to this day, I mean, I talked to him about every, uh, almost every single day about business, you know, he still has all these different ideas all the time, you know, so it's one of those uh, deals. And I think that's what's important, you know, and I, I think, so transitioning, I think that's it, you know, we had to have the passion work, I think, because, you know, you look at it, I remember my dad telling me, you know, people are going to judge you different than an average employee. So you got to work hard, you know, so you have to put in even more effort when you're part of the family than when you're not, you know, you can't be that country club kid that's just coming in that's getting the job because of nepotism. You have to really do it. And we had that passion to, to do it, you know, and I think that's something that I've told my kids, you know, the same type of thing, you know, and they, they saw it growing up, you know, um, you got to come in and work hard, but they have such a passion for it too, that they take it personally, everything it's, you know, and so that's, uh, that's just it, you know, and, you know, so my sister and brother and I, we, you know, we talk about all that kind of stuff all the time, you know, I don't want to make this political, but do you think from your experience, the things that your dad made you and your brother do where you needed to work harder because you're going to get more scrutiny being the owner's child? Do you think we're losing more and more of those values today in society? I think we are, you know, unfortunately, I think um, some parents just coddle their kids too much. I think uh, education does a little bit. I was just at an EO meeting this week and we were talking a little bit about that. And one of them was saying, he goes, what happens is soon as a generation is successful, the next generation, they see how hard they worked. So they understand it, but maybe they don't work as hard. By the time it gets down to the third generation, you know, one of the guys was saying it gets even tar- harder because they haven't seen the pain of what, the, what you go through. You know, I saw how tough it was for us, you know, in business. And my kids kind of know that too. You know, they're, they're in a much better spot than, you know, you always try to hope, right, in a family that each generation gets it better than, than the last and have, have a better way of life. And I think that's the case. But I think as a, as a country, you know, and that's what happens. And I think that's, um, and that's why I was, you know, I tell people all the time, if you're a young person and you hustle and you work hard, it's never been easier to get ahead because we as entrepreneurial businesses recognize that. So if you come in, you don't have to be in the business for 20 years to get ahead. You could be here three or four years. You work hard. We know that, you know, and you're going to get ahead, you know, that you don't have to be here forever. So that's one of the things, both as employee and ownership that, that matters, work ethic. Yeah. Do we have more family balance than when, you know, my dad's generation? Absolutely. Because we know how important that is. You know, my dad, you know, it's, you know, I think I look at our retail hours back then. We were open to nine o'clock at night, Saturdays, Sundays, you know, and, you know, so I think we've come full circle again. I remember way back in the day when my dad would talk about how Sundays were a sacred day and now we're back to close on Sundays all of these years later. So, you know, so we're, you know, we have a better work life, but when we're here, we got to work hard, you know. When you think about you and your own family, trying to make sure those values were instilled. What's most important to do that regardless of what's going on outside your own house or outside your own business, making sure that the third generation, that they really have a sense of work ethic, of humility, and just a lack of entitlement. With both my kids are in the business, you know, we'll, we'll chat about that. 
and they're both hard workers. So I don't have to, you know, I don't have to really worry about that. They've been back in for a while now and um, they're both very hard workers, but also we have more things in place from now to learn, you know, so there's uh, they're in groups where they're being mentored, you know, they're in peer groups. There's, um, you know, my son is in a next generation uh, RV peer group, and he's also in a next generation family business group of learning how to, you know, the day-to-day operations from, you know, that. So I think there's a lot more tools now, sophistication to really even train them on, these are your skill sets and this is what, what you need to be successful because you're right, third, once you get down to that generation, as we know the stats, you know, you know, you read them all the time, how few make it from first to second, but really second to third becomes, it's, it's, it's really abysmal, you know, how few actually make it to the third generation, you know, and then after that, it's even more complicated. Yeah, I think it's 14, 16%. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Did you push your kids to go into your business or did you give them the freedom of choice? Oh, totally. Yeah, total freedom of choice. You know, we always talked about it and I think they both um, wanted to, you know, especially my, my son, you know, my, um, it, well, the joke was like my, uh, my dad got on my uh, name tag back when he was like 12 or 13 years old, CEO in training. <laughs> he already had his eyes on it, you know, and, um, but my daughter, I remember her, you know, she was working and wanted to come back. And I said, no, nah, you're not quite ready yet. You need some more experience. And then finally, one of my managers said, we had an opening and said, Hey, can, the, can we talk to Nicole? Is she ready to come back in the business? And I remember calling her up and she's like, Oh my God. Yeah. So he, you know, she came back, you know, and then, and then my son, he was also big for, he was working for KPMG and he's like, dad, I think I got enough experience. There's nothing much more I learn. I might as well just come back in the business and start uh, learning my role there, you know? So then we had that chat. So they had such a passion for it. And I think, you know, like my dad said, if you go home at night and you just talk positive about your business and that your kids will appreciate the business and they'll want to be in the business. And, you know, Luckily, um, he and my mom emulated that. We were so positive all the time about business. So when we're together, you know, if you were with us at a family outing or family uh, to get together, one minute we're talking about uh, Yankee baseball or something else. The next minute it's about something in business. And then we're back to something else on the, you know, we're, you know, we're back and forth all the time with, with, with no transition, you know, and that's the way, then that's the way our my house, you know, my kids uh, kind of learn through osmosis, you know, I wouldn't, I mean, yeah, there are a lot of challenges, negative stuff. I wouldn't talk to them much about that, but I would always talk about all the fun stuff. And of course, they worked in high school and college, so they got to see it too. So I think that's, uh, you know, your personal demeanor and outlook makes a difference, you know, on how you, because kids learn so much through seeing their parents. You can't fake it, you know, they kind of know if you're passionate about it, you're not passionate about it, if you're, if you know, how, you know, all those kind of things. How do you not get calloused over time with the hard stuff, with the challenges, with the adversity? For you, yeah, you know, I think you know one one side of it is I have um, great peers, you know, and peer groups that I talk to all the time, you know, so you know that you're not the same. Everybody's got issues, and then you know, bigger than that is I just have an unbelievable team, you know, management team that I work with that we just work on it together. So it's not it's not all on me, you know. Are there certain things, you know, maybe yeah, you know, but I have to keep from them, you know. But overall, we talk about everything. My management team's amazing, you know. They, you know, I can. We're all together. They'll do anything for me and for our business. My guess would be that you've probably 3X the business since you and your brother came in. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah, we have. You know, it's, um, I mean, this year it'll probably be close to 5X since, you know, since we, since we've grown it, you know, it's been, it's been great. So when you think about structure processes that stuck out to me from a first to second generation standpoint, that seemed to kind of uptick when, when you and your brother came in assuming that I read that correctly. But when you're talking about a management team, you talked about another location, 
150 miles south of where you are now and the continued scalability and the opportunity that you have, what have you learned that's most important to you on building out a management team that you're proud of and that's loyal and that's stuck with you and that's really helped you and your, you know, your brother 5X the business and really take it to a whole new level for when it's time for the third generation to take the baton from there? Yeah, I think, you know, my my dad had great managers and, you know, I, when he put me kind of in charge, you know, these, I inherited kind of his management team and they were, you know, they were like family members. And then, you know, as you grow, we, you know, we typically, we've been very fortunate overall. We've been able to, our true leadership team, we've been able to grow internally over time. So they know, um, they know our culture, they know our values and we kind of know, you know, and also we don't want to promote people for the sake of promoting people, right? You know, so we want to make sure that, you know, I want to make sure that the right fit they have the passion, the work ethic. They, you know, they understand, you know, the um, the people side, the business side, and so that's kind of how we've gone about it. You know, very very methodically to get the right people on the, on it. And we always look at it. It's um, you know, because now we've been in business so long, we've had some great people on our team retire. You know, over the last uh, five to ten years, and at times it's like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do when this person retires? They 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 know everything. You know, and but it's you know, I've looked as we've built people. It's like anything else. It's probably, you know, the next person up, they, they've helped us get it even to another level, you know, and it's like, it's almost like the military, they're so respectful of their, they, they contribute so much, but they're so respectful of the management team that you don't even realize how much is inside some of these people until all of a sudden they're in charge. And that's uh, of, a, of a division or a department. And to me, that's been exciting. And, and you know, we have a, um, over the years, we put in a great meeting rhythm cadence, you know, so we're, um, as a management team, we, you know, we meet every week. As a, as a senior management team, all of our departments meet every week. We have a daily huddle. So all those things keep us on that communication of what's going on. You know, and I think that's one of the things I've learned through the years of growing it. The only way you're going to drive the business is you can't be on the hamster wheel. You actually have to be, in my role, I have to get better and better at being strategic and making sure that people are running the business and not be just putting out fires all the time. And I think that's one of the things that me and my management team, we've been really disciplined as we build out. Sometimes you look at it like, you don't want to build an org chart that all of a sudden you're adding layers. But as we've been able to grow, we actually have add layers that people can really specialize in things and really take things to the next level. And I think that's been one of the exciting parts for me. Do you think you benefit from being in a small town of 19,000 people in small town values and loyalty, maybe in a way that you don't get in a big city? At, well, absolutely. You know, because we're, we're an important part of the community, especially where our headquarters is. You know, we have two of our stores are here most, you know, a higher percentage of our employees and all of our, most of our corporate people are here in the Amsterdam. And so we've been here so long that people understand the importance of Alpenhouse to our community. They, um, they understand what kind of employer we are. And because of the way we treat our employees, you know, we have long-term employees, you know, like my goal is our, um, our big goal is to have a waiting list for employees in certain departments. We kind of do, you know, that we want, we want to be so coveted for people to work here that we basically say we have an opening. We just call somebody up and said, all right, there's an opening. You can come, you know, that's our, that's our goal. And I think that's where we really benefited, really. Because some of the other stores where they don't know us as much, it's tough to go into town and try to hire people, you know, because it's, I shouldn't say it's tough, but it's tougher than here. And so you're saying the experience that you have where you have a deep history and connection to the community that you're in, you literally have an experience that's the polar opposite of the rest of the country. Yeah, we just, you know, it's kind of funny because, right, this last couple of years, right, hiring has been one of the key topics, the labor market. And we've had the last uh, two years, we've had some of our best years of recruiting ever. We've, you know, we've uh, 
Do we have some openings in certain areas? Absolutely. You know, so like everybody, we haven't grown, but we've never really had a point other than like an 0809 where we've got to lay people off or some other years where we're not looking to add people, especially with the seasonality, you know, because we go up and then we go down, you know, so every year we're adding on people. And, but yeah, the last two years, and especially this year, we've added so much great talent. It's been unbelievable. You know, where people, they wanted to come to work for a place that valued them. Some people we've, like I was just sharing yesterday, some people, because we're an in-person company and we're in retail, some people got sick of working remote. You know, a lot of people wanted to work remote, but then some people missed the social interaction. They got tired of just working at their kitchen table. They wanted that human interaction. So we've actually benefited from that a little bit of getting, you know, to work for a still a family business where they can have some flexibility um, and be valued, but not be sitting at their kitchen table anymore. Let's say you're at a seminar and you're up there on a panel and somebody wants to really understand from a recruitment standpoint, if you want to do things in a way to be built to last on getting good people and, and having just a steady bench depth, the way that you described it, what's been most effective for y'all to really have the recruitment the way that you have it? I think, you know, for us and we, what we talk about is you have to have a connection to the employees. You know, it can't just be like you said earlier, you can't put something on the wall that just looks good. You actually have to live out your core values. You have to have the interaction. You have to know your employees, you know, and maybe it's not me knowing each employee deeply, although I try to as much as possible, but our managers have to connect with employees. They have to connect um, with them on a deep level. People want to know if they're doing well or not doing well. So, you know, we have, um, we do, we do one-on-ones with our employees. You know, we try to do them every uh, 30 days to 45 days max where we sit down with them. Everybody. Everybody. Everybody in the whole company, up and down the whole thing. What's going well? What's going well with you personally? Any challenges? What's going well at work? Where do you need help? So it's not a, it's not a case where we're beating them up. Do we have some accountability? Absolutely. You know, if it's a salesperson, are you hitting your metrics? Hey, you're off a little bit. How can we help you? What do we got to do to get you back on track? Those kind of things. Do you need any more training, any more development? These are all things we talk about every month. You know, what what are your dreams, you know, and I think that connection makes it that you can, um, you can scale that connection when you, when you have a system in place to do that. So on top of that, then obviously then they, you know, because they're in meetings every week, they kind of know what's going on in their business. Not one of those, I wonder how we're doing, you know, and I said, I sent an email out to our company every single week, just with some highlights, what's going on. You know, for years now, I've been sending out just some highlights. I'll call out some employees, but I'll say what's going on in the business. You know, maybe I won't get into deep into the financial stuff, but I'll tell them, hey, the RV business is off this much percentage right now this year, but here's where we are at. Here's what's going on, you know, with a new project we have going on. So they kind of can get a sense of what's going on with the company so that, the, you know, the communication is important to me. What have you learned about data and tracking and sounds very specific and you got 300 people. You talked about trying to do one-on-ones every 30, 45 days. What have you found that's most effective in actually trying to capture it? and circle back to it to where people don't feel like it's a waste of time or it just vanishes. That's, that's the key. You know, so we do employee surveys every year to see, is it resonating? Where are we weak on it? Those kind of things. Do they feel like their voice matters? And, you know, you always look at it, it comes down to leadership. So we, in a year, we might have a department that goes down and then we look at it, you know, that leader needs more help. So we, you know, we can see kind of that, but I, we can kind of sense that earlier on, you know, you know, sometimes, but you know, me being a former uh, accountant, you know, metrics and data matters. You know, I remember years ago when Moneyball came out, I made our whole team watch it and said, um, our management team and said, we need more Moneyball in our business. We can't, we just can't go by the seat of our pants and by emotion. Because sometimes, you you know, you perceive what's happening versus what's really happening are two different things. So is there always, you get it, you know, it's like in our business, because, you know, nothing's predictable. 
you get some of this data, but then you have to put your own little spin on it, right? It's just data, you know? So we, you know, we try to collect as much as we can on everything and then use that data for uh, its information to make decisions as we look at. Is it fair to say that your father and his partner, they really took chances, saw opportunity, built great relationships, took care of people, created a, a fun and exciting culture and got the business to a certain place. And then you and your brother came in, bought out your father's partner, and then y'all really start to put a lot of systems and processes into the company and really try to take it to another level and and really scale the operation. And then you hit 2008 and you had to lay people off. A third of the people in your space went out of business. You had to shut some locations or a location. You said you really 60% of your business got hammered. Is that fair? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then when you're coming out of 08, 09, you made it through, you're probably still in a vulnerable position, but then the then the market started to recover. Yeah, just kind of little by little, you know, just it did. And so then really from 09, 10 to, you know, roughly 2020, you just kept building back the company. That's exactly what was going on. How would you describe COVID? Similar to how you answered it about 08, what time and space, what that feel like? What it feel like inside the business? Yeah, you know, it was kind of crazy, you know, because especially being in New York State, you know, there were certain states that really, obviously, New York was hit early, and I, you know, I remember it's like it was it was so crazy because um, our governor was saying, all right, we got to reduce our workforce by so many people, and so we'd have a whole meeting, we come up with a whole plan, like this is unbelievable, you know, we got to send people back, we got to figure this out, and then the next day the whole plan would be changed again because it changed again, and then the next day. You know, there's an important press conference and it would change again. We're like, oh my God, this is unbelievable. And then when all of a sudden it's like, we're closed, you know, you got to send, no business can open. It was like, is this really happening? You're right. It's like, you know, like everybody was like in a trance. It was like, it was so surreal that it was actually happening to that degree. And it was weird in a way, you know, because it was scary, right? You know, because you didn't know what was happening. Everybody was, everybody was worried about their health. They're worried about their, uh, relatives that are older, you know, so everybody was really concerned about all that because we didn't know much. But compared to 08, 09, I knew we had built up such a balance sheet that I told our, you know, our management team, I'm like, we're in a good spot. I mean, we don't have to sell anything for, if we're closed a month or two months or three months, we're fine, you know? So it was, it was weird, you know, because we were like in a, in a war zone that we were Zooming every day and communicating and coming up with the different plans. And then obviously the PPP thing comes out, you know, and it was certainly a, a weird time and an unbelievable adrenaline. Did we ever think we just were doing whatever we could, like watching everything, trying to figure out how do we get back open? What can we do? You know, first we could sell virtually. Then, you know, then we could do by in-person appointments. Then we could do curbside, you know, so every every time there was an angle, we figured out, all right, how do we do this? You know, and um, then we would do it. And then when all of a sudden they allowed us to be back open, I don't think any of us ever could have perceived that it was going to be gangbusters like you had never seen in history. I mean, it was it was unbelievable because every all it was like mid-March for us kind of when it hit and all the business we lost in March, April and May, we made all up almost in June. It's like we had two and a half months of business we lost and, and made it all up in June. It was it was unbelievable, you know, and so we were able to bring all our employees back with the COVID money. We were able to give them bonuses when they came back because it was, you know, it was tough times, you know, they didn't know, you know, they were, you know, some people were scared to come back to work, but we, other than a couple of people who were, uh, had 
some uh, compromised immune systems. We got all of our employees back as soon as they could, no matter what it was, they all came back right away. And so I look at it, it was a lot of lessons learned. You know, our communicate, it was great with our communication. We even communicated with employees that were out, what was going on. And, and, um, and then for us, you know, as I look at, you know, certain businesses and how do we get back after COVID, our employees don't even remember really COVID because to us, it was so long ago. We were, we got reopened end of May of 2020 and we've just been going full steam ahead since. So you literally sold a quarter worth of revenue in one month. <laughs> yeah, it was unbelievable. So much so that it's like, you know, you look on the RV side and this is kind of a funny, this tells you. We have, now we have all these, we're selling these RVs, everything off the lot. People are like, I got to get out of town. I can't leave the state. They're buying RVs left and right. And, you know, one of the things we obviously we do is we have to get them ready for the customer, but then we have to clean them. Well, we didn't even have enough people to clean them. And we had to see, we had these high school kids. There's no school because school's close. So we had some high school kids. And I remember it's like, do you have any friends? Yeah, I got friends. It was like little rascals. Every day we'd show up, every day we'd show up there'd be more kids working. It's the same on the boat side. And it's like, because they were just clean, you know, they had to get these units all cleaned up and ready. And we saw it was like everything off our lot, you know, every, like, it seemed like almost every RV, boat, somebody asked, are you out of the boat business? Because they drove by a lot and we didn't have a boat. We're like, no, we sold them all. It's like, that's impossible. Like, no, literally we sold them all. And they couldn't believe it. Every hot tub we had in stock, we sold. It was unbelievable. You know, it was just, it just, it was pandemonium, you know, and, and then our, our employees, you know, like I said, they realized, someone realized for the first time, boy, what we sell really matters. We're bringing families together. They're able to vacation. They're going to be able to de-stress. They're outside in nature. And, you know, I think it was, um, it was, it was really a, a defining moment for a lot of our employees to see, you know, and how many customers were thanking us up and down for getting them out of their rut. And giving them life. Giving them life. Yeah. What can you say? It's kind of personal, but even amidst in everything that you just shared, you were talking about the PPP money. You were talking about giving people bonuses coming back. You're talking about the governor would say this or this would change and reacting quickly and selling out all your inventory. What have you learned about your own personal cadence day in, day out, late nights, early morning? What have you personally learned about how you get clarity about what's going on and then how you make decisions, especially when there's so much at stake during like a, a war zone time like that, whether it's COVID or it's OA? Yeah, you know, I think I've learned over the years, I rise to the occasion, you know, I'm well, I can do it's like, and, you know, whether it was back at uh, the CPA days, where, you know, you have truly back then it was busy season, where you got to put in insane hours or this, it's, um, and I'm, I've kind of built for endurance, you know, on my, my, my hobbies outside of this, you know, I did Ironman for years, do marathons. And so I can, I can, for a period of time, I can just do whatever it takes, you know, and I know that, you know, and so in this case, it really wasn't like any choice, you know, it was just like, it's just, this is the number one focus. This is all I got to think about. You know, I was online reading, reading stuff, you know, and I was actually helping other businesses. My dad said, Hey, can you talk to this person and somebody else do this? I was helping other businesses because I read the PPP up one side, down the other side. I was calling different dealers, trying to see what they knew. And you just have to become, you have to take things in your own hands sometimes, you know, and I think, Cause you can't sit back. You know, I think so during, during that COVID period of time, it was like, all right, assess what's important now and figure out where do we go from here and then, and then figure it out. And so business just blew up and it's continued to increase incrementally. Is that fair over the last three years? Yes. Yeah, that's fair. You know, we've been blessed because um, post COVID, you know, the whole industry has had a little uh, relapse. It's been down the last two years, you know, so our industry, especially on both the RV on the RV side, especially, they're looking now compared to 19 because 20, 21, 22 were so crazy. We've been blessed because we're, we've still, um, we've been up the last couple of years still. I mean, we had a little bit of time where it softened a little bit and then 
It's been more of a challenge, you know, again, this economy we're in, obviously, because they're trying to slow it up, but we've been able to continually plug along and, you know, defy the odds. Why is that? What do you think? I think, you know, everything that we've done, we've set ourselves up to just um, work hard, connect with customers. We get so much repeat referral. So I think we're not, we're not immune to just conquest sales. And so I think that's been beneficial, you know, like we talked earlier about, you know, some of the, um, you know, the roll-ups and consolidation. I think that this is a time right now where our connection to the the stores we're in has, has helped. And I think also, you know, to a certain degree, you know, we're doing better than even, you know, the Northeast market, but also, you know, the Northeast, you know, we don't have the booms like some of these parts of the country are, you know, I mean, so we're, we're an older economy when you look at the Northeast versus a lot of other parts in America. So it's more stable, both on the highs and the lows. So I think that's kind of helped us too. So we, we probably didn't have the highs that some people had during COVID, but we have, we're not having the lows either. Because of the quality and the thoughtfulness and the connection to your customers, would you say that you get a fair amount of customer base that will travel or that will come to you, you know, from outside of maybe a specific area because you're a thought leader in your space or because of your reputation? It really does. You know, it really does. You know, for the most part, wherever our stores are, you know, we try to focus really on that market. We're not looking to sell a lot of out of market, but we have people that that market grows and they'll travel. So, you know, we have people from Long Island that travel up here for their motorhome service. You know, people from Northern Jersey will travel up here on the RV side. So that's, um, that's not normal, but they built, our teams built up such a connection with some of these customers that they're willing to make that trip. And uh, which is pretty awesome. And then, you know, just locally, it's like, we have so many generations of uh, families that continue to just buy from us that just repeat, you know, that have been, you know, they'll say like, my parents bought, you know, from your dad and, you know, and it's like, it's just, it's, it's one of those things that makes us very proud because we have that, you know, we can bank on that sometimes in tougher times. Was there ever a point over the last 30 years where you seriously thought and wondered if you should get out of the family business? Me? No, never. No, never. So you've been, you've been all in the whole time. All in. I mean, you've, um, the, you know, the biggest consolidator in our, uh, in our space is Camping World. I mean, you know, you know, you probably know of Camping World. They're, uh, they're the big player. And when they just got going, some of my friends sold out to Camping World. And, you know, Marcus Lamonis, who runs that company, um, was on the TV show, The Profit. He came out to meet with me, you know, talked about, us maybe rolling up and being part of that organization and me playing a role in that. And I remember my dad and I talking about it afterwards. He says, you know, if you think this is the way to do it, we can take some chips off the table, you know, and we can maybe do that. And I was like, no, you know, I like the independence of working for myself, working and having a family business in town. And we just said, you know what, then 08 happens. And we're like, geez, maybe we should have done that. (laughs) But no, really, we never looked back. It was kind of, it's, it's just been, we just love it, you know? So it's never been one of those things, you know. What did COVID tell you about the American people and people in the Northeast that you feel like is there and maybe will be there into the future regarding your work and your industry and hobbies and recreation and sports? I think really, you know, really what happened is, you know, the spaces that we're in, it brought more people to the outdoors. And I think, you know, you look at it where so many of, you know, they especially talk to the younger generation of how, um, and even people in my generation now, right? They're so connected to, you know, their phones, to TV, to, you know, technology and really people, you know, nature, being outside in nature and being with your family and sitting around a campfire or being on a boat or sitting in your backyard by your pool. These are all things that people need. They, you know, they need to unwind. And I think that really, um, you know, people, you know, people, even stuff that we don't do, people took up hiking and things like that. You know, they talk about the, the Adirondacks. 
the trails are so packed because everybody's outside. Everybody's discovering nature. And, you know, you see that across the country. You know, when you know, when I see pictures of Utah, right, the people, it's unbelievable. So it's it's not just us. It's been, hopefully it stays that way, that people stay connected to nature and get outside, you know, because the fact that you had to be inside, then all of a sudden people wanted to be outside, right? You know, and I think that's um, that's important important lesson that we saw. And so what are you expecting? If you had to forecast it out five, 10 years from now, what would you say? I think, you know, we're very bullish. I think, you know, our industries are going to continue to grow. There's a lot of people, obviously, that like flying and going away on vacations. But, you know, for a lot of families, you know, for what we do, they can own an RV or a boat and then they can be, they can get a lot more out of it with their families and not have to get on an airplane and go to a hotel. And, you know, they can have, it's, a better, some, it's a better quality vacation. So it's a great alternative. And, you know, like the, those, you know, obviously, if somebody has a boat there, you know, a lot of those people are on it every weekend in the summer. If you have a pool, you know, people are putting the money in their backyards. It's the whole summer, right? But then on the RV side, people are going camping. Some people are even commuting from local campgrounds to work sometimes, taking a, you know, maybe they're going for two weeks. One week, they're kind of commuting to work and their family's staying there. And the other week, they're on vacation. But it's, it's, it's that's what we've learned. I think that the, um, the younger generation, it's like we've seen, um, they want to do both, you know, and they, you know, one of the things like in the RV industry is it comes up, the number one thing that people want is Wi-Fi and campgrounds because they want to be able to get away, but they also want to be able to catch up on their emails or do stuff, you know? And so I think that's, um, they want to be outside, but they also want the ability still to be able to check in. So, I, you know, I think that's where we're kind of headed, you know? What about from an environment standpoint? Is there anything that you could speak to or say that you've seen firsthand of the climate where you live and how that's affected recreation and the hobbies and the sports that y'all support and what that may mean for the future? As my dad says, because we're, you know, we're so, weather, especially on the ski side of the business, we're so weather dependent, you know, pool side, you know, you know, summers are summer, you always get the sunny days, but in the wintertime, if you get snow or don't get snow and, you know, we've had our ups and downs over the time. I think what's, um, you know, we get in patterns like last year, it's, um, it's kind of crazy. Ski season came late. We didn't get a lot of snow, but then some of the mountains were opened all the way to June, you know, it was kind of crazy, you know, and it didn't seem like we had much of a winter, but then we didn't have any spring and it stayed cold. So it's been it's really wacky. I think um, the fact now that all the snowmaking, especially on the ski side exists, it's uh, that part's unbelievable. So you can literally get no snow and the skiing can be good, you know, and then we get these storms, you know, hopefully we get a pattern, where we get a lot of storms again, you know, it's, it's tougher sometimes for the snowmobilers, you know, if, uh, if we get those thaws after the storms, cause then they can't really snowmobile ride, they got to trailer them, you know? So I think that's, that's some of the challenge, but it all kind of seems for us, it all kind of seems to even out from year to year. We go in these patterns up and down and, you know, we, we continue to watch it, but it hasn't really affected us overall. Like given where you live and where you've grown up, would you say that in your head with certainty that global warming has been a big issue and is an issue and you can see how it's affected your business? Or would you say, I haven't really seen it that way to where it's that concrete? No, I'd say, uh, you know, not that concrete at all for us up here, you know, so it's, being that we measure the weather all the time, you know, it hasn't had any effect on us at all. At the very beginning, you talked about being able to understand how to see change and understand change and know what's changing. What do you think's changed the most with your space? And what are you seeing now that you're expecting to change that you're trying to take advantage of? I think, um, obviously, the products, you know, keep getting more and more sophisticated. I think the customer, um, what they're expecting, you know, they demand, they're demanding more and more perfection out of the products. So I think customers aren't as tolerant when there's issues. I think now after COVID, they're a little bit more tolerant with supply chain issues and stuff like that. But now their um, their patience is thin again. So I think that's a challenge. Um, 
products aren't perfect, you know, and that's what's tough. And I think because they're, um, you know, back years ago, you know, everybody had a toolbox, so to speak, as, uh, as my dad and some of the, you know, some of our people have been in this business a long time would say people could fix their own things. Now it's all, there's so many electronics and circuit boards and things like that. You can't fix things, you know, you have to get it repaired by us. So it's, uh, that part's a challenge. So that's why we can really double down on customer service because we don't want our customers to go through um, tough times. We want them to enjoy their vacations, enjoy their products. So I think that part of it, you know, I think that, you know, people want things to be easy and they also want an experience. You know, everybody looks at it. It's like online is going to replace retail. So that's one of the things we always hear. And then we look at it. Yes, people will do a lot of shopping online, but people actually want to come and have a human interaction. They want to see the product. They want to hear from an expert. They want to know, why should I buy this RV versus this one? Or do I, you know, if it's skis in the wintertime, I'm going skiing here or there. What skis are the best for me? Because if you go on, you know, as we know, it's almost information overload when you go to the internet now. That you actually become, I know I'm the same way. It's like certain things you research and you can become paralyzed. You can maybe figure it out, but it's a lot better to um, find out from people who know what they're, you know, who do it every day. So, you know, so I think that connection is um, what I'm bullish on. And so long as you're building the right elements for a store and a connection with them, with customers, I think that's uh, that's where we're kind of headed, you know? So what you're saying is sophisticated and modern web presence and e-commerce capabilities, but now more than ever, it's even more important with the people you have, their ability to solve problems quickly, their ability to connect with people, their expertise and understanding of that market, and kind of the blend of both is what's going to create the best possible option in your space. Oh, no doubt about it. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. And you know, when you have the passion, you know, if they have the passion for what we do, you know, that translates into the customer, you know, about going camping and talking about it or going skiing and you know, where they're going. I mean, that's uh, that's one of the things. When you say passion, you've said that word several times. What do you mean by that? I think, you know, because, you know, we always say, you know, it's one of our, you know, core values, passion for what we do. It's like, because, you know, you can't just, we're not just selling a, a widget. So if it's just a transaction, then, it, then you're not really building, you know, it's just transactional. You're not really building that connection with the, with the uh, customer. And so for us, you know, when you really, it's an emotional thing. So we always look at it. We're not really, you know, the product is just helping them with an experience. If you're going camp, yeah, it's a great RV. But really, when people look at it, they don't just talk about the RV. It's about what they're doing while they're camping. Or when you're going skiing and riding the trail with their kids and skiing on the snow. Yeah, the skis provide a great experience. But it's, you know, there's nothing like a powder day or having French fries and a hot chocolate in the lodge with your kids at lunchtime. Those are the things that people talk about, you know. So the products we sell just happen to help get them to experience. That's yeah, that's when I talk about passion and me being, you know, in the business, those are one of the things, you know, that I that I love about everything that we do. And I'm my one of my favorite passions is uh, skiing. So I already have uh, my ski days picked out for this winter already on my calendar to make sure I've been blocked out. That's awesome. <laughs> if I'm understanding you correctly, you and Alpen House are positioned very well for the future. You got 60 years of history. You got three decades of second generation leadership between you and your brother. You've got people that want to work there. You're connected to the memories and the experiences of the customer. You've got a strong balance sheet and you've got good values from a town that you love. And you've got continued consolidation in your space. I would imagine that people that are in bigger markets or more of a corporate atmosphere, they have a harder time teaching those values throughout the organization. They have a harder time keeping people for 
the length of time that you're able to keep people for. They have a harder time attracting people that have a passion for the craft. I'm not trying to point it in a doomsday thing. It just seems like you have a lot of things going for you that really connect with the human being. I think so. Yeah. I think, you know, we're blessed because we have so many friends in all the spaces that are great operators. And so we see the good things they're doing. And we feel like, you know, because of all those things you just mentioned, that our best years are still yet to come. You know, we feel like it's like we're building, we've built a strong foundation. Maybe it's almost a 60-year foundation now, but we feel like we're positioned to have even better years. So that's, you know, for me, look from a doomsday. And we see it, you know, because I get calls all the time. You know, we bought out a competitor a couple of years ago down in New Jersey. There's a lot of people that don't have the next generation, so they need to exit, you know? So when you look at consolidation, part of it is in every business, there's no exit strategy, you know? They rightfully so, they've worked hard, they want to retire, they don't have anybody to sell it to. And businesses like ours that are growing are an alternative to grow. So, you know, we're looking both organically or through acquisition to kind of do that a little bit. So what do you see? How big do you want to get? What does that look like for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years? I'm not, you know, I'm not sure exactly. We just keep building the infrastructure. You know, we're, uh, like I said, we're balance sheet driven. We just keep looking, you know, for opportunities and every, you know, we want to make sure it's like my dad always says, you make changes in good times. So we just keep trying to keep making changes, keep building, you know, and you have to, you have to grow and provide opportunity. And it's important, you know, for us to grow for the right reasons, not just to get to a number, to get to a number. So we, you know, we're looking at it from an opportunist, what opportunities present us and does it make sense? And do we have either the capital or the infrastructure, you know, so we don't want to do it for the wrong reasons. And so, you know, we, that's one of the things, that's why we've been so uh, stable all these years. What do you think is going to be most important when it's time for you to transition, which I know that'll be in a while, but for the third generation, what kind of skill sets will they need to have with the way the world's evolving? How will they need to behave? Well, I think we talk about all the time, you know, because, you know, for us being now uh, practically, you know, we're about a hundred million dollar company now. And with, with uh, you know, six locations and 300 employees, it's a much more sophisticated, you know, we're a, we're a sophisticated business. You know, we're not like when my brother and I came in and, uh, and then when my sister later joined, where we were, everything was under a rooftop where you could see everybody every day where you could just rely on, hey, you know, can you do this or can you do that? You know, it's, you have to have the systems and process. It's a required, it's a lot, there's a lot more moving parts and business is a lot more complex and you can, um, you can make bad decisions quickly that can scale really rapidly, badly, if you don't do the right things, like from an inventory perspective or other things. And so I think, you know, the skill set's different. And I think that's why I'm very conscious of making sure that my kids are getting a lot of uh, training, the right training, you know, so they continue to have those skill sets. And that the managers that we're growing too continue to get training at a different level and to be able to do that. So I think that's, um, you know, as you, as you grow, it gets more complex, but I also look at it, it also gets in certain ways, it gets easier too, because you have more people to do things. You know, I remember when we were younger, it's like, oh God, we got to do this or that, but we only have two people. Who's going to do it? Now, as we have more people, you know, some of those problems get solved easier because we have people on our team. So it's, on one hand, it's, it's tougher. On the other hand, it makes it easier. You know, it depends on which way you look at it. Is there a sport or is there an activity that you feel like is just, besides pickleball, <laughs> that's not really pertinent to our conversation, but that's just gain that you feel that you're just really bullish on? that is related and connected to your business? There's nothing new that we're looking into, you know, because the, product, the, the, the fields that we're in right now, we're really committed to, and we know we can grow those spaces. And, and, and frankly, partly because of consolidation too, because we know there's going to continue to be more because the first generation are going away 
if they don't have a transition plan, they'll continue to either close up or sell out. So we think there's a lot of opportunity to grow. And we also think the spaces are growing that we're in. Um, so we're, you know, we're excited about that. You know, on the ski side, more families are getting into it. And I think that's exciting. I think what competes with us at times is uh, with families, they um, also the competing factors, kids are overscheduled. There's so many sports that go on. So sometimes families like we want to ski, but we have, you know, my kids are in this sport, in this sport, in this sport. And so we compete against that a little bit, but still it's like, we're growing that, you know, one of the things we didn't mention, but my dad had this idea years ago to do free lease skis for kids five and under to help grow, help families and help them get, get on the mountain skiing. And we've grown that from its infancy probably a decade ago that our total lease program now this year, we did, four, uh, we could have done more, but we couldn't get the skis. We did 4,500 skis through our stores. 4,500 kids got to ski. Yeah, well, not, not all free, because then we have five and up, they have a program, but but we didn't have a lease program really 10 years ago. We sold skis, we take trade-ins, and then, you know, he came up with this brilliant idea, and we've grown it, and so we're growing that business, because we look at it that there's an opportunity to get from 4,500 to 10,000 in the next few years. So we're, you know, we're doing a lot of things infrastructure-wise to be able to grow that. So, you know, that's shown us how many families, and partly because of COVID was, is helping that again, too, because people, they want to connect with their, with their kids and be outside. That's awesome. Super yeah. smart. Last question I got. Somebody says, hey, you, you could have gone and worked this corporation or you could have stayed at big accounting firm. What's the pride being a part of a great American family company that was started just one employee, a few part-time people 60 years ago and now where it is today and where things will be? Yeah, no, it's um, it's definitely, you know, because it becomes personal. It's the family. It's our name. It's my father's reputation. It's our reputation. You know, so I think from that standpoint, it's like I don't ever lose sight of that, you know, of how important that is. And, and especially in the community, because, you know, it's we're like I said, we're so important to our community. And so all, all those things, there's a lot of pride, you know, um, for sure. And it's sometimes it's kind of surreal to see when we look back at where we are versus where we were and how we got to this point, because it, it seemed like it happened over, you know, it didn't happen overnight. It's been a long journey, you know, so, and um, it's, it's pretty awesome. Pretty, pretty humbling too, when we look at it. That's awesome. Well, what sticks out to me and what's so neat is just focus, consistency, and endurance through all these different years, all these different ups and downs, and but then the passion for the memories, the way you were talking about the hot chocolate and the French fries, and it's about the values to the customer and the memories they're making and the and the relationships they're building with their own friends and family, and it's powerful. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review. Please subscribe to the show and you can follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram to join me for future episodes of the Driven By Podcast. Hope you have a great week and see you next time.